I didn't ever think about quitting more than like in brief little moments where I was like, oh my God, is this the end? It always felt like quitting or giving up was something that like happened to me. It never felt like something that I would consciously make the decision of. And then finally one day we were sitting in the kitchen and he said, "Um, you know that you don't have to do this anymore. Like you don't have to do this this afternoon and you don't have to do this tomorrow. And I felt like I got punched in the stomach, but it was the biggest sigh of relief I had ever felt. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we're talking about practice. Hey, Pete, on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McAlvin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. We're back to the long-form interviews today. Uh, Ellen Noble comes back on the show for the first time in a pretty good while. Those of you all that are familiar with the show will know that we often have conversations with incredibly successful people, people who are living their dreams, certainly have gone through hardship, but more often than not are kind of crushing the game and doing awesome stuff. But I am just as interested in the full breadth of the human experience and the the challenges as well. Um, and Ellen is certainly one of the people that unfortunately the last couple of years has had more of the latter. She was riding a high in the midst of a really promising professional racing career and then was just completely blindsided by a really significant health issue that pretty well just ended her career. Despite that, I've continued to kind of uh, see what she's up to and really been impressed with her decision to kind of remain a leader, which is one of the, the things that she made a priority during her career. She's always been a really positive voice, particularly for young women. And she hasn't stopped doing that despite really incredibly tough circumstances. So I wanted to get some insight on that, have her back on the show. First and foremost, just catch up with her. We were actually teammates way back when, and it was great, great to do so. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ellen Noble, someone who to this day really, really impresses me. I'd like to say a big thank you to One Up USA for supporting today's podcast. One Up USA makes the best bike racks in the business. They're 100% made in America. They come with a lifetime warranty and come with free shipping on orders over 550 bucks. We are in love with our Super Duty double rack. It has a capacity, weight capacity of 50 to 75 pounds per bike spot, depending on how many trays you run. We often throw on an extra two trays uh, if we're riding with friends or traveling with multiple bikes each, which is certainly pretty frequent, but it's also nice to just be able to pop those extra trays off um, if you're going to be in a big city and doing a bunch of parallel parking or that sort of thing. One Up just does an incredible job of producing really, really high quality bike racks that are sturdy, durable, and really modular too, so they can fit whatever specific needs you may have. I highly recommend you go check out oneup-usa.com to learn more. Thank you all so much for listening today, and we'll catch you after the show. Uh, okay, Ellen, we have, I don't know how many podcasts we've done at this point. I want to say at least two, maybe three. Um, you were one of the very first ones way back when. Um, so sorry about that, but thank you. <laughs> I, I remember it fondly. Uh, I like to think we've come a long way, but who knows? Um, <laughs> and when we had that first conversation, uh, the way you spent your day today was was quite different. Uh, your life has changed quite a bit since then. Um, for those that may not be aware, which I think honestly is probably very few people, but for those few, can you give us a quick background as to what your story arc has looked like over the last, I don't know, three-ish, four-ish years? Yeah, so I guess four-ish years would have put us in 2018, which I think I'll always look back on as kind of the highlight of my career. 
I was a professional cyclocross in mountain bike racer. In 2018, I was making my run at the Olympic team on the mountain bike side and um, had a really, really good year on the cyclocross bike. I think I won eight consecutive UCI races, um, World Cup podium, sort of, you know, just like real breakout season for me. Um, but later on that year, I ended up, I just stopped feeling like myself. And that sort of began this ongoing process and sort of descent into chronic illness that I now know. So uh, about a year later in 2019, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disease. And I continued to race kind of through that and sort of tried to balance. And I really wanted to become this sort of um, inspiration for other chronically ill people with autoimmune diseases, uh, you know, as sort of a professional athlete to inspire them. Um pandemic hit I continued to train through that but uh ended up fracturing my spine in three places in my first big race back after the pandemic and that was sort of the beginning of the end for me and unfortunately after about 10 years of racing professionally I made the decision to step back from pro racing so that was um, what I was calling my sabbatical at the time because I really believed that there was a possibility that I could take two or three months off the bike or even six months off the bike and feel like a new woman uh, and be able to sort of like finally put a dent in the chronic health problems that only got worse and never really seemed to get better. And then, uh, you know, a year on, it's been, well, just over a year since my announcement. Um, I unfortunately still don't feel very good. So I have started to really refer to it as my retirement. And um, yeah, I sort of have a very different life now, but I also had an amazing 10-year career and had a lot of really, really remarkable moments. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what you're feeling? Yeah. I mean, like the big thing for me that I think is like so poignant is that I just, I have chronic fatigue, like Mm. pretty much all day, every day. And you know, I was like such a little athletic badass as a kid and I could do everything and anything. And, uh, you know, like my coach got mad at me one time when I was like a freshman or sophomore in high school because he found out because I like had to go to the hospital because I was doing three, I was doing varsity hockey, varsity cross country and racing a cyclocross calendar. And he was like, I didn't know that you did other sports. Like you're supposed to tell me that you do other sports. (laughs) So like I just did everything as a kid and you know even into my adult life I was like I just loved exercising and I could do so much and then kind of just this dark cloud came over me one day and I suddenly became tired from Mm. doing these things that used to be like nothing to me and that has really been like the one constant as I have all of these like horrible uncomfortable symptoms that come and go just fatigue and malaise has really been here to stay. Hmm. What is Hashimoto's? Um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis is an autoimmune disease that targets the thyroid. Uh, and come to find out the thyroid is, it's described as a butterfly shaped gland in your neck. Uh, it's in charge of a lot. It, uh, <laughs> you know, the funny thing is our endocrine system is a system. And if one part of it is off, it kind of wreaks havoc on the whole thing. So I have, you know, just kind of a whole slew of symptoms that I think either stem from my thyroid dysfunction or from something else that's yet to be discovered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about that process of, I guess, almost more like gradually retiring, because obviously it wasn't like a some sort of um, traumatic injury that made it obvious immediately that your career was over. It was this mysterious thing that you, like you said, it was kind of this dark cloud that began to creep over. Um, I'm sure there was a phase of just confusion, still confusion, but uh, (laughs) just incredible frustration, um, especially before you had any sort of diagnosis. But can you talk about kind of the decision to quote unquote officially hang it up, you know, where you, you notify your team, you notify your coach, obviously your significant social media following, all that sort of thing. Um, what was that decision like? Yeah, it, 
you know, it's funny, a little bit of a tangent here, but I just recently on my own podcast had a conversation with Curtis White, who just became cyclocross national champion. And he, um, you know, he's had a lot of near misses in his career. He's raced 18 cyclocross nationals. And finally, uh, just on this last go, won his first national title. And I kind of asked him, I was like, did you ever want to quit? And I thought that the answer was going to be an obvious yes. And he was like, ah. I mean, I was frustrated, but like, basically we got to the conclusion that he would still be doing this if he were finishing 40th or 50th. Really? Wow. And that was really eye-opening to me. And I, I think like, yeah, it really showed me that I was very tied to success in this sport. I love mm. riding my bike, but I guess I really loved racing because I loved being good at something. Yeah. And when I talk, it was talking to Curtis that made me realize that, um, some people really just love doing this. Yeah. And I know that that's a little bit, um, maybe a little bit jaded to say, but that was really important for me to realize. So that's a little bit of an aside for what I'm about to tell you. But yeah, my descent into retirement was slow, I guess. So my diagnosis came in 2019 and um, September of 2019, it was a Friday before the season opener, Rochester C1. So I Got out of the doctor. He said, very obviously, 100% you have Hashimoto's. You're going to start medication. You should be good as new in six to eight weeks, which is like kind of hilarious. Mm. Anyone who knows anything about autoimmune disease is like, you have a doctor that told you you'd be good as new in six to eight weeks? Like, ha, ha, ha. Mm. So I like get out of the... I get out of the doctor's office, pack up my bags, hop in the van, and we drive to Rochester. Uh, and so, I mean, pretty clearly it was a seamless transition. I was like, yeah, okay, I have this thing, but my medication's going to fix me, and this is whatever. So I never considered quitting, and then things just kept getting worse, and I absolutely did not get better uh, on that medication. And they were just like, I'd have these bad races, and I've had these bad moments, and I something that is still like a little bit... Um, triggering for me are the days like when I just feel so flat and tired because it reminds me of all the workouts that I had to scrap where I was like I don't have mm. the I don't have the ability to do this today and I had a lot of those moments where I was like okay maybe I should quit maybe I need to quit and somehow I would say that I maybe just needed to quit and then I'd wake up the next morning I'd do it all again and somehow I just kept putting one foot in front of the other for a really long time so 2020 was like actually weirdly enough like the best training season of my career. I just started working mm. with Alan Lim. We did a very very like stringent COVID safe like pod training camp and um I was just on fire. It was mm. the most amazing season of my life. I was riding like better than I ever had in my whole life and um yeah, I kind of felt like those moments were behind me. So I go into my first race of the season in April of 2021, and that's where I fracture my spine. And even then, it's sort of funny. Sorry, I, can I pause you real quick? Yeah. Why do you think that you had that physical rebound in, yeah. in training in 2020? Have you, have you gotten any answers in that regard? That is a really good question. I actually don't know if I ever really... like. I think Alan was such a big part of my process and he was he was there every single day. He was there on every ride, whether in the follow car or on an e-bike riding with us. Um, and so I think like he really just met me where I was and I had been doing like a lot to sort of mitigate my illness. And at the time, the things that I was doing were really like... Uh, sort of, uh, what am I trying to say? They were working, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything that I did, I was getting payback from. And so I was like on this very, very specific like autoimmune diet. And I was so happy. I had just started dating my boyfriend, Aiden. And mm -hmm. like, we were cooking food together every single day. And I think it was just like this perfect storm. And it's like, yeah, if I could live in this little vacuum of like being in the honeymoon phase with my boyfriend having a follow car of um, food supplies and my like incredibly supportive coach and only riding in sunny Boulder, Colorado when I felt good. Like, yeah, I would probably <laughs> still be healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not real life. So I was in like this perfect vacuum. Mm -hmm. um, so 
then fast forward, fractured my spine in three places. And even then, I didn't fully... I didn't ever think about quitting more than like in brief little moments where I was like, oh my God, is this the end? But it always felt like retirement or not retirement. I thought of it as quitting. It always felt like quitting or giving up was something that like happened to me. It never felt like something that I would consciously make the decision of and that will be relevant in a moment. So I like trained through my my broken back and I was like doing rides in a back brace. And this was under like very, very... Um, good guidance. I wasn't just like, you know, yeah. going, going rogue. I had like one of the best physical therapists, the best personal trainer, the best coach, like everyone being so, so focused on my recovery. So I, yeah, I wasn't just like off riding mountain bikes or anything, but I was like trying to meet myself where I was every single week. And I just didn't, it just wasn't right. Hmm. I was always hoping to get back to the way that I felt before that accident and it wasn't there and I had all these new autoimmune symptoms coming up and I was like I was in constant pain I had like just all these like weird sort of hormonal problems and like uterine problems and everything it was like I I had never dealt with any of that before and all of a sudden it was like who is who is this person because Mm -hmm. none of this stuff happened before and then I started getting bloated and I feel like that was really I was getting like nine months pregnant belly at the end of every day (laughs) and that's humiliating I mean like I've had a lot of body image problems in my life and then you um you know, you start looking like you've gained a bunch of weight and you're wearing like our skinny little spandex outfits Mm -hmm. every day. And you're like, okay, I am not liking any of this. So I start going back into racing. Alan says, I don't think it's right for you to start traveling to these big races. You're not ready. You're hardly out of your back brace. I think you just need to do some local races and the Colorado scene is so competitive anyway. So it was a, it was a good opportunity for me. And I just did not have it. I mean, it was like the worst races of my life. Like every weekend, like I was hardly able to win like local races. And I remember pulling out of, I don't even remember what the race was called. And I was just like, I was just crying. And I just wasn't myself. And I had been not myself for a really long time. And I recognize that now. But like my mental health finally started to reflect my physical health. And I felt like for a little while I was able to keep those things separate and I was able to remain somewhat positive. And then I suddenly had this desire not to exist. And it was like the darkest time. And it just all felt like these things were like happening to me. I was not like there for it. And so it, so began this like, five or six week process of going to Alan's house every week. We always had our meetings on Wednesday, going to Alan's house every week and basically just crying for an hour or two hours or three hours until he finally had to go back to work. (laughs) And he's like, all right, try this for this week and see if this helps. Like this week, you're going to go to Crested Butte and you're going to ride mountain bikes and see if you feel better. And then this week, you're going to not ride at all unless you want to, or you're only going to swim in the pool or whatever. And then finally, one day we were sitting in the cafe space. We were sitting in the kitchen and he said, um, you know that you don't have to do this anymore. Hmm. And I was like, I know, I think what I've decided is that I'm going to finish out this season. (laughs) I'm going to finish out this season. And then I think I'm going to look at racing enduro and see if maybe that works better. And he said, no, I said, you don't have to do this anymore. Like you don't have to do this this afternoon and you don't have to do this tomorrow. And I felt like I got punched in the stomach, but it was the biggest sigh of relief I had ever felt. And it was like when someone tells you something and it immediately feels right, even if it's hard, that like that made my decision for me. And I never, ever would have made that decision if I hadn't been given permission from someone like Alan. It's what I was about to say. Honestly. <laughs> yeah, I, I never would have. I, yeah. I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that I never would have made that decision on my own. And I was so scared. And I said, what about my sponsors? And what about, what about everyone? What about you, Alan? I mean, look at how much you have invested in my career. And he was like, you got to worry about you first and we're going to take care of the rest. 
And yeah, to say it wasn't easy would be an understatement. There were so many uncomfortable phone calls that I had to make and people that I had to tell like, yeah, you've invested in me heavily and I can't do this anymore. But at the end of the day, I knew that it was the only way. Like, what representation do you give to sponsors or races or um, events if you are a shell of yourself and your physical body is just along for the ride and like your brain has been left behind? Um, so it was really hard, but I had to lead with that. And so that's where my sabbatical came from. I wasn't mm-hmm. willing to say that I was never going to race again. I just said, um, <sighs> yeah, I'm taking a break. I'm stepping back from racing, I think is what I said. And it took me a really long time to come to terms with it enough that I told the public uh, I needed to have things like a little bit more in line. And so I took a couple months really just for myself. And then I finally came forward with it and I was so scared. And like with most things, the reception that I got was just beyond words. People were so kind and the words of encouragement and everything was just, I feel so blessed for that. Uh, And I think it's the only consolation that like, I never got my, you know, my victory laugh. Like when, Mm. you know, pros get to say, this will be my last season Mm -hmm. racing and Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to all these events. Like I obviously really wanted that. I imagined that that would happen when I was 35 Mm -hmm. and I had been to the Olympics or stood on a world champs podium again and was hopefully going to be like retiring to have a kid or something Mm -hmm. like that's what Mm -hmm. I hoped for. So then all of a sudden to be sort of stepping away from racing um, with my head hung a little bit low and licking my wounds wasn't what I wanted, but I guess it was the journey I was meant to be on. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, there's that saying that the the athlete dies twice, right? You know, the athlete <laughs> dies <laughs> dies the death that every human dies, but there's the death of retirement also, which even when, I'm told, even when you do get that victory lap, even when retirement is on your own terms, usually is unbelievably hard. Yes. Yeah, and I don't think that there's an easy way to retire. No, but I mean, even like kind of making note of that and then piling on top of it retirement when you're just barely reaching your prime it's not on your own terms it's mysterious it's sad it's uh feels unfair like i just i really can't imagine and i what you say about alan is is uh so poignant because as athletes you you get so programmed to just run through a brick wall no matter what like nothing can tell you no the weather won't tell you no illness can't tell you no injuries bad results whatever it is you're you just have to be (laughs) you know an assassin when it comes to just getting through stuff yeah um and i have to imagine it was virtually impossible to turn off that same mindset even in the face of all of these things that were going wrong and so to have alan there who has seen it all been (laughs) doing it forever he's you know sort of voice with true sage wisdom it's just that's heavy you know that the idea that um you probably wouldn't have been able to say no without a voice like that I think that's so poignant yeah Um, I I don't know what I would have done without Alan and I think I've only worked with two coaches in my life Al and Alan (laughs) (laughs) and both of them I think what makes them such amazing coaches like yes they're both geniuses and they know everything that there is to know about physiology and all that so do a lot of people. I think with Alan and Al, they both have this way of knowing what you need Mm. and then giving you permission to do it. Where Mm. it's like, Alan probably didn't think that I needed. Well, no, that's not what I mean. Alan, it didn't matter whether Alan thought that I needed to retire or take a step back. He could have thought that I still had my 10 best years in me. Mm -hmm. But if he saw that I needed to retire and I was afraid to do it, he gave me that permission. And I think that that was the biggest thing was he knew that I wasn't going to do that on my own. And I had obviously, like I said, been thinking about making a change, but there was no part of me that ever thought that I would be not racing my bike. I was going to finish out the cross season. Then I was going to try enduro and keep racing like a modified cross schedule. That was like my big, uh, you know, switch it up plan, which (laughs) in reality isn't all that different from what I was doing. But Yeah. yeah, Alan really gave me this 
that permission and it just, I mean, it changed my life. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have Aiden who, you know, ironically, uh, probably was almost like too, he would have been too close for you to like take that feedback from in a way it, it would seem like, but was there to catch you kind of no matter what, which obviously I have to assume was a pretty key component of, of actually successfully stepping away too. Oh gosh. Yes. I mean, I don't know what not just in retirement, but in life. I don't know what I would do without Aiden. But um, <laughs> like, obviously everyone has different relationship dynamics, but Aiden and I's dynamic is not one where he would be like, hey, you know, like hold my face between his hands and say like, I think you should retire. Right, right, he, right. That's just not who he is. And yeah. so if I said like, buddy, I'm doubling down and I want to do 10 more years of this, he'd be like, okay. <laughs> All right. So, you know, he was, he's just always been like crazy supportive, but Aiden is not a competitive person. So Mm. when I was like, oh, maybe there's life outside of competition. He was like, yeah, (laughs) 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 it's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when I was like, I want to start riding more for enjoyment and seeing the other things in the world. He was like, cool. I, I know a guy. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. What has that been like? Like what today, um, what is your relationship with the bike like? And what have you found time for that you didn't maybe even knew existed? What have you discovered? Yeah, I like, I wish I had this like super exciting answer for you where I'm like, (laughs) oh my God, I got into marathon running or like I go on these crazy ultra endurance rides But the harsh reality is that I stepped back from racing because I was too ill to do the things I needed to do to be good at my sport. And that is still very much an issue with me today. So I don't always exercise every day. And when I do, it's not always like the most exciting stuff. And I look at the things that you do, Payson, and I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) that is so sick. I could never And I hope someday I can, but (laughs) right now it does not feel possible. Uh, And so, like, I have started finding joy in, like, the less intense activities. So I've gotten really into rock climbing because it's, Mm. like, it's such a great way to meet yourself where you are. And if you can only climb, like, V-zeros and you're just, like, cruising on the wall and half the time you're sitting on the mat talking to people, like that's great. And if Hmm. you feel like really good that day, you can climb super hard. And, um, you know, I love doing yoga now and I never thought I'd be in a place where I'm like, Oh my God, I love doing yin yoga and meditation. Like I never saw that. I never saw my brain going that way. Um, but my relationship with the bike is ever changing. I hope that one day I'm able to get back to, riding all the time and like I live in the most amazing area for riding and I want to be able to take advantage of that more (sighs) but I'm not there yet and I think that there's still this um my therapist calls it little t trauma where it's like we have big t trauma like uh a death or an accident or something like that and then there's little t trauma of all the small things that happen that are still like low-key traumatic as the Mm -hmm. kids say Mm -hmm. uh and like my relationship with the bike has a lot of little T trauma that I'm working through. So right now I don't ride very much except for like going mountain biking with my dog sometimes, but I hope that that changes. And, um, as my physical health improves, I'm hoping that that will continue to evolve. But right now I'm finding joys off the bike. I think, um, as much as I'm finding joys on the bike. Yeah. I love the way you just described climbing because it's so true. It's almost like it's like a group, uh, or it can be like a group puzzle, you know, it's it's not like a bike ride where you go on a group ride and maybe at the beginning you're feeling good and you get 20 miles away from home and then halfway up some big climb, you're like, wow, I'm really falling apart. But unfortunately I'm 20 miles from home (laughs) with, with climbing, you can just come back down and sit on the mat and Mm -hmm. chat. And yeah, it's so true. And I haven't spent much time in climbing communities or that sort of thing, but I've always been fascinated. Um, by them. And, uh, it it seems like, yeah, it's a, it's a really cool activity. And I've, I've never heard that described that way, but it seems perfect right now for you. Yeah. It's funny. Like I just boulder inside of a gym because it's like, it's dark, like 
most of the time here. So it's like we go into the gym. It's nice because it's like a perfect winter activity and it's just like super inclusive. Like because we're bouldering in a gym, like my friends that are very, very good and I can still go together and we can like jam out where it's like Mm. if my really good rock climbing friends were, were to be the equivalent of like bringing me on a mountain bike ride or bringing like a beginner on a mountain bike ride, like that would be so rude yeah (laughs) like taking them on like a double black mountain bike trail but like you can be climbing the wall like the climbs that are like right for you so it's been really important for me like as I'm sort of recultivating my athletic identity to be able to do things um yeah that kind of fit my physical capacity which is extremely limited if i'm being honest yeah that's interesting yeah and especially in a bouldering gym it's so much easier than on some bike ride for someone that's really new and someone that's really advanced to do it together yeah that's really cool um is it hard for you to see what your peers are doing in the cycling world whether it be social media or when you're at the events we're going to talk about your announcing yeah um are you able to compartmentalize some or even find um find some joy in being at events or or watching events from afar or is it this reminder that you'd kind of what's that dynamic like yeah it's like I have this little devil on my shoulder sometimes or maybe like evil brain that will say like okay that that should have been you or that could have been you Mm -hmm. and like when the final moments for the Olympic selection were happening in 2021. I was like, I wanted this to be me mm. so badly. Mm-hmm. I And I really believed that my name would have been on that long list, if if not the short list. And, um, you know, like watching Tokyo unfold it was really hard because that dream died for me in like uh, a million little times. I've, so I've had my moments there. And I see like, some of these, yeah, just some of these races that I'm like, wow, I really, these people that I used to race against achieving like incredible success. And I'm like, we were rivals. And Mm. so like, I have these like little moments, but for the most part, I am really happy with what I'm getting to do. And I have my really hard moments when I'm like, I am so sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so I resent that a lot. Um, but I also have so much greatness in my life and a lot of things that I don't think I ever would have found in my life had it not been for having to step away. So it's it's a yes and. It's like, I wish that I could have been where I knew I could be. And I'm very, very happy for the things that I get to do now. And I think that um, my mental health continues to improve. And I think that my physical health, um, while stubborn would not be any better and would probably be a lot worse if I had continued to race. So it's Mm -hmm. a little bit of a balance. Yeah. Let's talk about the announcing some. Yeah. Um, On paper, it really makes sense. And it was fun to see you just all of a sudden pop up as this really key voice to some of the biggest events in the country doing the, the, whether it was the live broadcast or, or the actual um, like on the ground announcing but even though I think a lot of people would be like, oh, yeah, Ellen Noble, she'd be really good at announcing it. That's not always how it works. Like sometimes no. you think someone would be good at that sort of gig. And then for whatever reason, they just don't quite have uh, have that like special sauce that that makes it work. Um, but you really do. And I've heard, you know, just sort of even at the events, you know, someone will kind of be like, whoa, Ellen's like really good at this. This is cool. I'm, I'm really glad that she's the one on the mic right now. And there's also the, the component of like your proximity to the athletes. Like not only were you just there a year ago and you know a lot of them personally, um, you're also of a contemporary age. And so yes. for whatever reason, I think that matters to an extent too. Like there's always a little bit of a, um, there's a difference when you know, there's a there's a 60 year old guy who hasn't raced in his bike in 30 years announcing um, versus someone that is a little bit more of a contemporary. So there's there's something that's added there as well. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and, you know, what you're getting out of it, whether you see it going anywhere, all that sort of thing? 
Um, well, I really appreciate the compliments, first of all. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I mean, as suddenly as it may have appeared to, like, racers, was as suddenly as it happened for me, which is kind of funny. I um, had just privately announced my sabbatical to my sponsors when Trek was like, well, you were supposed to be at the World Cup anyway. Do you want to just keep doing that and come out and hop on the broadcast? Hmm. Uh, with Steve Schlinger, who is like the voice of ESPN. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was like, uh, sure, that sounds really great. I've never done that before. And that scares the crap out of me. So I'm in. And I really liked it. And I love like, this doesn't really show like this isn't who I am on social media. But uh, like, I'm a big bike racing nerd. And <laughs> like, I pay attention to the little details and I think it was part of what made me good as a bike racer because I've never been the most physically talented um my power was always like remarkably low maybe unbelievably low for some people um but I paid attention to the really little details and I finally got to demonstrate that in that capacity to say like oh look at this person when they go through this corner or like here's kind of what's important about the setup that we're seeing here and so I actually really liked it and it was a little bit theatrical and I loved, weirdly enough, I loved the stress where it was mm. like, okay, this is a performance. Like mm-hmm. you're logging on or like you're putting your headset on and then you have to keep your shit together for 45 minutes or 60 minutes or 90 minutes of, um, you know, you have to bring your A game. So like I couldn't physically show up to the races anymore, but like this was like my mental challenge that um, did its best to fill that void. And so I really liked it. And then from there, it just like accidentally took off. I hopped on one broadcast of the Trek World Cup. And then next thing I know, I had all these opportunities. And, uh, you know, like not that long after I was asked to announce the world championships. Which is crazy. Cool. Crazy. Yeah. And I bet it did kind of scratch some of the same itches in a way, because by definition, you're the period of time that you're speaking is about the duration of a race. And, you know, if you just fumble your words for a sentence and confuse the listener, it's sort of like, you know, blowing a corner in a race or Mm -hmm. something like that. Like you can recover from it, but it's super not ideal. So I bet there were some some similarities there. And and, uh, I I could see how it would be really fulfilling um, coming from the background that you have. So do you see do you see doing more of that in the future? Is it something that you uh, enjoy enough to pursue and, and, you know, dedicate some time to making a staple of what you do every year? Yeah, I, I actually really like it. It's not really a full-time gig, at least not for most people. Like there are some people who have been able to make a full-time job of it, but it's not, it's not easy. Uh, it's just like people who want to be a full-time pro bike racer. Mm -hmm. You're like, Mm -hmm. it happens. But not everyone that you see doing it is doing this full time. Um, And so I really enjoy it. I love the challenge. I love the competitive. I also love the theatrical component, which is something I really derived from bike racing as well, was like, um, you were a performer and this is your stage. And so I really like that. Um, And so I'm like open to riding these opportunities wherever I can. And I also am really excited about any potential like adjacent work. Uh, So I've done like a couple of video presenting jobs and that sort of thing. And I really like that as well. So I'm in a very like uncertain part of my life right now. And I'm open to a lot of possibilities. And I think announcing and commentary is uh, definitely part of that consideration. Yeah. Cool. Love that. Yeah. Well, as someone, as someone who is in the race, I wouldn't, yeah, I would, I would love to see you at Sea Otter again, for example, or any of the others, you know, I think there's the, the cycling scene in the U S obviously is in this really interesting phase where it kind of continues to splinter. Um, and I think it's from a fan base perspective, I think it's really important that there are educated people explaining to the viewers what's going on. Cause that's sort of yes. step one in, in creating a healthy fan base. So, um, yeah, very cool. Um, I want to pivot towards a different subject that's, um, maybe not as at face value, not as 
happy-go-lucky um, and exciting. Um, throughout your time on social media, well, to this day, but starting, it seemed like pretty early in your career, you became known as someone that was willing to be really outspoken about challenging issues and, and a leader, really. Um, and you've continued to do that, even though you're not towing the line at, at the highest level anymore. Um, you've continued to be outspoken about issues and, and trying to help others, whether it be with awareness or education, that sort of thing. And not too long ago, you put up this post on Instagram about starting to use SSRIs mm-hmm. and how they'd been just a, a, a God. I don't know if you use the word God sent, but it was clear that it was changing, life changing. It was a very uh, pivotal thing um, in, in this story arc of the last couple of years. And earlier we talked about how you spent all of this time dedicating time and resources to trying to find answers for the physical side of things. Like how can I get my body to do what it used to do so I can continue this career? Um, But this SSRI conversation is more about taking care of yourself emotionally, obviously, um, which arguably is even more important. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that journey, part one, maybe explain what SSRIs are and then... I would love to hear kind of what the response has been leaving out, you know, whatever yahoos like to create drama just for the sake of drama. But um, what that whole phase of things has looked like for you. Yeah. Um, So I think like the first key here is that, um, you know, we're talking about physical health and mental health. And like for a remarkably long time, I saw those, I saw physical health and mental health as completely separate issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that happened because I was able to maintain like a very positive and um, optimistic worldview, despite like my physical health being in shambles. And then it wasn't until my, I said this earlier, my mental health started to represent what my physical health was, um, that someone very important to me said, uh, you know, you always talk about your physical health and your mental health. Like they're two different things. Have you ever realized that it's just your health? Mm -hmm. And that if your mental health is horrible, your physical health is usually not, um, exactly like thriving either. So I've started to see these two things, uh, you know, really as one. And of course, at least they're, they're related and maybe they're not always evenly matched, but they're definitely, they impact one another. So I have dealt with anxiety my entire life and I didn't always know what it was. And, you know, I used to just think I was like a worry wart or something like that. And then I started to learn more about what anxiety is. And I was like, oh, that's me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think like a lot of people struggling with realizing that they have anxiety. I was like, oh, I like the idea of high functioning anxiety. That's a lot more comforting to me. Like I'm high functioning. And then I'm like, no, I don't think you are actually, but I was like a lot more comfortable with trying on high functioning anxiety is like a little bit of an easier pill to swallow. That's just an aside. So mental health went into shambles. I had dealt with anxiety my whole life. And then during my, um, you know, big broken back early retirement situation, I was like, oh, this is depression. I understand what depression is. I, uh, the world is gray and I have no interest in anything, and I don't even want to be perceived. Just, like, let me exist here in this shell of myself. And I had two really good friends right around the same time start talking about SSRI use. And one of them had been on them for quite a while, and she was like, it changed my life. Like, this stuff is amazing. And then my other friend was like, I'm actually having a really hard time with some medical stuff, and I am recently starting SSRIs again. And I'm like... What are those? I thought that I thought that SSRIs were things that um, you give to people like in the psych ward, and they're mm. like, "No, <laughs> these are um, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, are um, antidepressants. Basically, what they also can impact um, OCD and anxiety and different types of um, mental health disorders." And I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting." So I started looking into it, and I read about all the reasons behind why people would take SSRIs. And I was like, whoa, that, that's kind of interesting. Like you're telling me I might I might just um, 
be down a pint. Like it's not mm. like some moral failing that mm. I am depressed. Like I might just need a little bit of, I might need a jump start. Mm. And so I started looking into it. I was working with my doctor, started SSRIs, took a little bit of time to find the right um, dosage and the right medication for me. I ended up on an SNRI, which is a serotonin and neonepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, which is just a little bit similar, but different. And I was like, oh my God, this was the, and this is what I talked about in that post. I was like, this is the first time in my life that I've ever felt what it might be like to be heavy air quote normal, Hmm. um, where anxiety is no longer in the driver's seat. Like Ellen is in the driver's seat and like, yeah, anxiety is on the bus, but anxiety isn't, isn't driving the bus. That's a great analogy. And it was like, <laughs> it is so beautiful. Mm. Like, I didn't know that I could exist without this. Like, by the time I started taking medication, I was like having a hard time driving. Wow. And like being in a car. Mm-hmm. And um, I had this big fear of everything in my house getting dirty. And there's just mm. like so much that I look back at and I was like, whoa, I don't feel that way anymore. And that's really refreshing. And I realized that the reason I have tried to share, and I I just wish I could even share more, and I haven't, the reason that I want to share about my experience is because I had such a biased view of what SSRIs are. Yeah. And because my friends were honest with me, I realized that that's something that I could benefit from. Hmm. And so it's like, I'm not... I'm not like peddling drugs. I'm not like, oh my God, everyone should be taking SSRIs. What I'm saying is that we all deserve anyone with mental illness and physical illness, but we don't, we don't stigmatize it as much. So especially Mm -hmm. with mental illness, you deserve to find the course of treatment that works for you. And when I've coupled therapy, weekly therapy with medication, I feel like a better version of myself and I deserve to feel this good and I don't deserve to feel like um, my existence is just reduced to suffering and so yeah I know a lot of people who have a lot of different methods people uh, have even talked about like the success of psychedelic treatment Mm -hmm. and if that works for you then like you should do that in therapy and obviously exercise is so good for your mental health it's like whatever it is that makes you feel like the happy version of yourself that's what i think we need to encourage and not completely stigmatize any of these treatment modalities if they're safe and effective and um clinically proven (laughs) yeah um so yeah i just want to reduce that stigma because i know that there are so many people who if i believe it if i believed it then i'm sure i'm not the only one yeah and What's interesting, too, is you have, obviously, you have really unique perspective, having been, you know, in the throes of a successful professional athletic career, um, and then having to move past that and go through the really challenging emotional gauntlet of letting go with that perspective and knowing who you were and knowing how you went through life as a professional athlete do you have any thoughts on, you know, the mental health of, of being a professional athlete? I mean, just more and more we're hearing, certainly in, in, in cycling, but even more so more mainstream sports because mainstream sports always seem to be a little bit ahead of us. Um, but there was a really interesting article about professional basketball not long ago in the NBA. And basically they, the league did this big survey and something like 83% of the players describe themselves as unhappy, which is just unfathomable at face value when you think about, you know, these these young players making millions and millions of dollars and they're famous and they're successful and they're living their childhood dreams and yet they're unhappy. You know, how could that possibly be? But we're just seeing it more and more. Do you, I know that's a big, big question and kind of broad, but do you have any thoughts there based on your you know, unique kind of broader perspective at this point? Yeah, I do. I mean, that statistic is like jarring, but also kind of like, yeah, (laughs) it, if you have had the experience that I've had or anything like it, I don't think that anyone who's been through this path has, is surprised by it. Unfortunately, I think like, 
there are a lot of ways to become a professional athlete. And there are things that encourage people to um, be professional at what they do. And I think a lot of people start out uh, because they love the sport and they're like, all right, well, I love biking. So I just want to keep biking. And if I can get paid to bike, that's awesome. And I think like, you know, I, I see the stuff that you do, like these like ultra endurance kind of like challenges where like you're racing yourself or you're like <laughs> just going for completion. And like that has become so much more popular. And I think mm-hmm. like that actually has really encouraged like, um, you know, like I look at Lyle Wilcox and I just think she's like the most amazing person mm-hmm. ever. And I just mm-hmm. love her. And I, I got to see her speak uh, in Boulder. And oh my gosh, she just like is so happy. And she's like, yeah, I just pedaled and then it hurt. And so I uh, kept pedaling and it was really nice. And like I eat Snickers a lot and then, you know, got to go to this place. And I don't know. It's just like she has this incredible demeanor. And so people like that exist. And that's one way to be a professional athlete. But a very, very common way to also be a professional athlete is to have this chip on your shoulder and or and or this void that you are trying to fill. Yep. 100%. And I let insecurity and like yeah, that chip on my shoulder lead the way for a really long time where it was like fuck everybody who said I wouldn't make it kind of deal. Yep. And like yeah, it's I understand why people are not happy because it's like you win the race. This was this was a really big thing for me. Yes, I won the race, but I didn't win by enough. Yeah, and so yes, true. yes, so I won the race. It's never enough. But I also won it last year, so I had to win or yep. else I lost. And yeah. so it's like, um, you know, Curtis is coached by my former coach, Curtis Way, who we talked about earlier, the national champion, and coached by my former coach and um, my housemate, <laughs> and he. He said, enjoy this one because it it never really gets sweeter than this. Mm. And I think it's true. Like your first national title is the sweetest because you have nothing to compare it to. You've only gotten second or third or fourth or 11th or whatever. Uh, And then next year, it's like, oh, thank God I defended this. Yeah. Like (sighs) big sigh of relief. And so it's like, even if you are someone who is just doing it for the love of it, there is still so much room for anxiety and pressure and, um, yeah, contract negotiations and I need to make more money or I need this next uh, ambassadorship deal or whatever. There is so much room for comparison. Uh, So I see why there is such a extreme prevalence of mental illness happening in cycling because, or in professional sport and also a lot of other very, very high, um, highly competitive industries. Um, You know, I think it's the same thing like with, art where people are like if I became happy my art wouldn't be as good I actually I Hmm. know someone who is an artist of sorts who it said that they were scared to go to therapy and work on their depression because they said that they don't believe that their art would be as powerful and that's a really scary and sad precedent for me and I think that there are a lot of athletes who feel the same way they're like if I were whole I probably would not be choosing to do seven or eight hours in the rain, um, being away from my family on the holidays, et cetera. So I think that there's a big void to be filled. And that might be a lot of speculation, but I'm 99% speaking off of previous personal experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a black hole of unknown too, because everyone goes through the experience a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, it, it's... It's almost painfully cliche at this point because it's such a buzzword at this point, but just talking about it, talking about mental health, um, regardless of the arena, just seems like the best way to kind of like you did with SSRIs, like destigmatize, let everyone know that um, the facade you may see, the facade of success, the facade of sponsorships, uh, whatever social media facade, like it. It is some of the story, um, but there's a lot of other things going on too beneath the surface and the willingness of people to start talking about that other stuff beneath the surface is really encouraging. Um, And it is really interesting to see the different personalities go about it in different ways and the different coping mechanisms, so to speak. It's funny that you mentioned the, the ultra things that I like to do because 
up until this year, it was just a, a fun challenge and it was like this compulsion that I really wanted to do. But it wasn't until this year where I realized, wow, I actually really, really need this. And it's great that brand partners see value in it so that I, I can do it. Um, but especially in this day and age with the pressure of the Grand Prix, for example, obviously anyone that's raced the World Cup like you did, it, same sort of idea, like a season-long schedule where every race is connected and there's this points chase. It is a different beast. I think athletes that haven't been exposed to that sort of competition in the past are all of a sudden like, whoa, this is next level. Um, there's a There's extra extra work that needs to happen on the mental side, I think. So that's been interesting to come to terms with a little bit. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think if I have any follow-ups in regards to, in regards to that topic for you. Um, it's just so awesome to me, Ellen, that despite everything that you've had to deal with, like that will, that desire to be a leader, not even desire necessarily, because almost more like willingness is the word I would use because it's, it's not, I assume it's not always pleasant. Um, but that willingness to be a leader is, is so cool. And, uh, I hope you never stop, never stop doing that regardless of what voice you have or, or what communities you're, you're, uh, running in. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it feels (laughs) like it's been a little bit of a common thread when my whole life is being, almost, dare I say, reinvented. It's been comforting to still be like, yeah, I guess uh, I'm not the only person out there with mental illness that might need to hear that you're doing a great job. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of talking about things, I'd like to round this out with a little touch on your new podcast. Yes. Uh, Talk to me about why you decided to do this what it's been like thus far. I know you're in, you're very much in the early days. You have two episodes out thus far, but I think I heard you mention a minute ago that you have at least a third recorded. I have um, two in the queue. Two in the queue. Yeah. What, uh, I, I guess we'll just start with why, like, why did you decide to do this now? Great question. Um, Oh my gosh, I feel like I only have long answers for you, but that's great. Uh, <laughs> you know what's good for long answers? Podcasts. Podcasts. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I'd rather be more of a long answer person than the interviews that I give that I am now on the other side of. When you're like, "How did the race go?" and they're like, "It was good," you're like, "Yes, Queen, give us nothing." Like, I love it. Okay, so I started this podcast. Um, Actually, and so this story does get told a little bit in my episode, uh, I think episode one with Leah Davidson, because I have two with her. So um, I started this podcast because I was in my comeback. 2020 was feeling good, but hadn't raced. I didn't really race a lot in 2019, didn't race at all in 2020. Uh, You know, I was getting ready for 2021, still felt like... Uh, you know, I had this potential on the mountain bike. I was like hoping to get back to the World Cups and whatever. This was before breaking my back. And uh, I could not stop calling Stephen Hyde and Leah Davidson. Hmm. I was like, you guys, I love you. You are so amazing and brave and badass. And honestly, I guess I say that this was 2020. Like this was even like late 2019, early 2020, like pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um which was a time that exists apparently. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I like, they had just been these resources to me for a really long time. Like even before things started to look better for me, Hyde was this person where I was like, buddy, like I I need you, like, please help me. And Leah had told me these stories because I was living in Tucson and she was training there. And so she had told me these stories of like her hip injury and Mm -hmm. still going to the Olympics and going to, uh, you know, going on to win, multiple national titles and stuff after her hip surgeries and whatever. And I was like, I was just like feeding off of this. Mm -hmm. They were so inspirational to me. And then I, when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I looked up pro athletes with autoimmune disease and it was like crickets. There was nothing Mm. like so few professional athletes, at least like household names have are open about having autoimmune disease. And I was like, all right, I need these stories. So, you know, I started kind of thinking it over and I was like, these stories really need to be told. 
about people who have come back from stuff. So I had an interview lined up with Hyde, and I actually had my first podcast interview with my manager, Pat Lemieux, who is married to Gwen Jorgensen, and we just Mm -hmm. talked about kind of like the performance elements of coming back to racing and coming back from an injury and stuff like that. And so I was, I had started this podcast called Call It a Comeback. And because they always say, don't call it a comeback. And I was like, no, we're going to call it a comeback. Recorded that with Pat Lemieux, hit publish, went to the race, fractured my spine. I said, okay, I I think I need to take a little bit of a break from the podcast. And it took me a year and a half, but I finally decided to get back into these conversations, but with a very different message. Mm. I didn't just need to talk about comebacks anymore. I wanted to talk to people who had been through some stuff and... I don't know if you agree with this, Payson, but Aiden says that the best podcasts are um, selfishly motivated. You are having conversations and asking questions that you want to be oh, hearing. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so I was like, I want to talk to these people. I want mm-hmm. to know, like, I want to know how you went through something tough and then came out of it. And what did you learn? And basically like is there hope for me (laughs) these are the conversations i'm essentially asking and having and i went back and forth on the name a million times and finally i realized i was like these conversations are like if uh if you're going through something this one's for you and that's where the name this one's for Mm -hmm. you came from and um so far it's been really really inspirational for me and i know that um I have a very small audience so far, but the people who are listening, uh, I'm so grateful. And they've been really, really receptive to it. And I think have really benefited from what we've talked about already, just two episodes in. Yeah, that's awesome. This one's for you. This one's on for you. Spotify, iTunes, everything? Everything. Even like the niche ones. Even the niche ones, yeah. And if it's not... <laughs> Let me know because I keep people keep saying, "Oh, this is my way that I listen to podcasts that uh-huh. you probably never heard of," and then we add it. So nice. No, it's so true. I mean, it is ironic how uh, podcasting can be such a selfish sort of endeavor in a way because you're fulfilling your own curiosities and, like, culturally, it's such a funny excuse to just like have a heart to heart with someone that <laughs> probably under other circumstances it wouldn't be appropriate for you to have a heart to heart with yes but it's so uh it's been such a such an incredible just opportunity in my life and and in a way i wish everyone could be in your position or my position where you're the host because it's so fulfilling um and what Aiden says, I absolutely agree with. You know, if, you, if you're trying to ask questions on behalf of the audience, it just gets so, like, surface level as you try to fulfill all of these imaginary people, and it just gets vague. Um, yes. But when it's, you know, your questions and it's your conversation, and, uh, yeah, it just comes across in a completely different way that's really valuable. And it's awesome that you, you've already picked up on that two episodes in. Thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been really great so far. And I, I like the idea of having these conversations that you wouldn't typically have. Like it might have been, I mean, the people I've interviewed so far are definitely my friends, but it would be like, hey, Leah, can I come out and spend a day with you and just like grill you at your kitchen table about like your trauma? <laughs> That's like kind of a big ask, but you're like, oh, but there will be microphones. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, of course I'm in. <laughs> So good. I can't wait to hear that. Cool, Ellen. Well, thank you for giving me so much time. Um, Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about today? No, I really feel like I got a lot off my chest in this therapy session, Payson. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Hello again, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ellen Noble. I want to say a huge thank you to One Up USA for supporting today's show. One Up makes the best bike racks in the biz. We've been using our Super Duty rack all year. We started out with the Super Duty Double, which can carry 75 pounds per bike slot. So you have no worries if you're traveling with e-bikes, etc. But you can easily turn that double into a quad rack with the add-on trays, uh, which we decided to do because we're frequently traveling with more than one bike a piece, we being Nicole and me, 
or if we're just uh, going for a ride with friends, maybe doing a couple shuttle laps, whatever the case may be, it's nice to have additional capacity for more bikes, of course. We're in Tucson right now, though, and it's a big city, and we went out on a date night the other night and figured it'd be easier to parallel park without the quad rack on, so we just uh, took a couple off, or you can just fold the whole rack up to the car. It's really incredible how modular these racks are, how durable. They're 100% made in the USA, come with a lifetime warranty, and we just absolutely love ours. Highly recommend you go check out oneup-usa.com to check out their sweet racks. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing the show each and every week. If you would like to go check out uh, some visual of this podcast, a little bit of video content, you can go to Stash House Productions on Instagram. Uh, We've got lots of video there uploaded from every episode now. Also, some more kind of behind the scenes of production of both the podcast side of things and also some of the film production stuff we're doing. You can check it all out at Stash House Productions on Instagram. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you next week.